real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. And today we have Sergeant Jay McMillan from the Lethbridge Police Service in studio. Bit of a background here. Jay was born and raised in Southern Alberta. He's been policing for 22 years. Uh, all that time was with the Lethbridge Police Service. He's worked in areas covering patrol, downtown policing unit, canine, and the priority crimes unit. He's currently a sergeant in quality assurance section, a member of the LPS tactical unit, and the president of the Lethbridge Police Association. Uh, he's been in the association for approximately 17 years and president for about nine of that. So welcome, Jay. Thank you for having me. So uh, how do you do three jobs at once? <laughs> I don't think it says anywhere that I do all three particularly well. Oh, <laughs> so, is it, uh, before we get into your background, is it, I'm guessing tactical unit is, is a part-time unit down there? We are a part-time unit down there, yeah. And even as far as the... Um, association work it is all off the corner of my desk yeah so i have a full-time job for the police service and quality assurance and tactical as needed and association all the time yeah oh i know how busy our guys are and their phones on all day every day the whole year it's pretty non-stop <laughs> especially in today's world i imagine uh, yeah you don't have a chance to stop it's not getting any any less or any easier that's for sure so um Maybe we'll start at the beginning, and if you can kind of tell us about yourself, where you come from, and and what led you into policing. That's a that's a convoluted story, and I'm not even sure I know what led me into policing. I just sort of ended up here. Um, but I'm Southern Alberta boy, as you said. I was born in Calgary, but never lived there. I was um, my family lived in a town south of Calgary, about halfway between Calgary and Lethbridge, actually. A town probably everyone's driven through and got a slurpee at, but nobody ever came from, and that's uh, Claire's home. Mm. Um, you know, small town, 3,500 people when I grew up there. And that was some time ago. Um, but I grew up there, and and my father uh, owned a sporting goods store, his own, his own business. My mother worked uh, as a volunteer coordinator in uh, a center for addictions and um, mental health. And uh, they were... It was a it was a fairly typical um, standard upbringing, really. A small town. I was because my father was in sporting goods. That was my life. Mm -hmm. I was in sports, and because my mother uh, was a volunteer coordinator for people with uh, addictions and mental health issues, that was sort of a part of my upbringing as well. Right, the familiarity with that, and that was that was a day to day thing for us. <clears throat> uh, and I, I grew up in that small town where you have to kind of find your own fun mm -hmm. make your own things there wasn't a lot to do there um, but we had access to a lot of things you know the, the foothills and the mountains were right there so camping and fishing and hiking and all the outdoor entertainment but i grew up playing uh, baseball and hockey primarily um mired in mediocrity for for each of those and it never amounted to much but uh, uh the end of my the end of my sort of childhood years i moved on and went to the university in lethbridge Mm. Um, and it was almost as though there, there wasn't 
a choice. I don't remember deciding on that specifically, but my brother had gone there and my sister had gone to college in Lethbridge. And when it came my time, my sister was already living there. So it seemed like a fairly cheap option. Yeah. To go stay with her and go to the university. Uh, and I did that. I went there and got a Bachelor of Arts in, of all things, history and English. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, the kinds of the kinds of subjects that'll serve you well later in life when you're looking for a meaningful employment. Um, and I sort of didn't have a purpose. I, I went to university thinking, I want to study something that I find interesting. And it's the only way that I'm going to do well at it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a theme that probably followed me through the rest of my life to this point. But was interested in history and English. And I studied those to the point where I got a degree and then had no idea what to do with any of it. So uh, I sort of forest gumped my way through life to this point, just following the winds. Um, I ended up, after graduating, um, working some sort of odd jobs in the restaurant industry um, until an opportunity came to go to Japan. And I, I moved there for a time and taught English in Japan. Okay. And again, it was sort of on the heels of my brother my trailblazing brother who went ahead before me and uh, he kind of paved the way. So I followed suit and I was there for a bit. I I came back um, enriched and with a little bit more money in my pocket than when I went, um, but was at a point in my life, probably 27, 28 years old, where I needed to make a decision on a career. Mm-hmm. And I had known some guys that went into policing and, um, you know, friends from school or friends of the family who had done it, and, and they were sort of trying to coerce me into doing it. And it was never at the forefront of my mind, I suppose. It was always something that you grew up um, thinking about. I grew up in a time where, there, at least where I was, there wasn't a lot of creativity mm. in, in thinking about a career. There were doctors and lawyers and teachers and police and fire. and The I, standard. The, stan- <laughs> the standard jobs that I didn't have... I personally didn't have the creativity to think outside that box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say I then got stuck in that box, but that's where I remained. And, and I followed uh, I followed the opportunity with the Lethbridge Police Service, actually. I applied in two places. I applied in Calgary and I applied in Lethbridge. And I got Lethbridge first and I, I took it. N- not with the Mounties at all? No. No, Mounties weren't a consideration for me. I, I was uh, drawn to municipal policing for sure. Um, not out of principle, just out of self-preservation. I wanted, uh, I wanted the stability of staying in one place and knowing mm. what that place would be. Uh, maybe going back just to working in Japan, and you're from Claire's home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the culture shock like? I, I I know lots of people go over and teach English, but I've never had anybody in here to, to said that. So how was it, that? It was interesting. Um, uh, maybe for down the road a bit here, but I found that as far as culture shock goes, I had a harder time coming back than I did going there. Oh, really? Interestingly, yeah, it was, when, when I went, uh, I had instructions on where to go, you know, I, I didn't speak any Japanese before I left, I remember studying it on the plane on the way there, it was a long plane ride, so I probably learned a few words, but I didn't speak any. And the plan was fairly sound, I was going to land, um, in Osaka, which is a fairly significant-sized city in Japan. And I had instructions from the airport to the port where I would catch a ferry where uh, my brother would meet me. 
Uh, and this was at a time before cell phones. So there was no, you know, there was nobody on the other end of the line to walk me through mm-hmm. how to get from A to B. And when I landed, um, oddly enough, I landed uh, during one of the worst sort of typhoons in sort of recent history. And everything was shut down. Mm. I was lucky to have landed on the ground at all, but we did. And uh, I phoned my brother to check in. And he said, basically, all bets are off. There are no ferries. You got to find your way here. <laughs> Go to the train station. Good luck to you. Wow. Uh, I'll wait at the train station for every train to come through until I see you on one, basically. Well, it's not like going to uh, a French country where maybe some of the words on signs kind of translate. You're going over and you're like, I don't know what the hell any of this is. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I was, um, I relied on all my, all my training in, in Japanese <laughs> culture, which, you know, consisted of a Tom Selleck baseball movie and I think Shogun, the book, but... Uh, I had to find my own way, and it was like a it was a massive puzzle. I, I remember standing on a train platform, and I knew uh, what the the kanji symbol was, or or the Japanese symbol was for the town that I needed to get to, and so I drew it as best I could on my hand, and then I would walk from train platform to train platform looking for one that matched, mm. um, you know, and trying trying to interact with the uh, with the the train staff to see if I was on the right track, literally. Um, and sort of fumbled my way through, but it, you know, several hours later, and a couple of train transfers, I I got on the Shiokaze and made my way to where I was supposed to be. Uh, how long were you there for? I was only there for about a year. Oh, yeah, more than most people would go away for. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe so. Um, at times it seemed really long, and at times it seemed like it was not long enough. But you know, I, I had friends who have done it both before and since. And um, it seems to be there's this sort of point of no return when you go to Japan where um, at a certain stage, there's a decision to be made where you get really comfortable there mm-hmm. and you make a lot of friends and maybe you you know, you know find a, a significant other. Mm-hmm. And it becomes harder to come back for them when you become a bit ingrained. I never got to that point in, in the first year, so it wasn't, it wasn't particularly difficult. But there was a lot of... Uh, you know, cultural learning to do when I got there. And I, and I absolutely loved it. I, I didn't live in a major city. I lived in a smaller town, not unlike, you know, the size of what Lethbridge is, honestly. It was about 100,000 people where I lived. Mm. So it was a bit quieter. Um, and aside from being, you know, one of maybe five or six white people in the region, uh, I, I fit in fairly well and it was, it was pretty comfortable. Have you ever gone back since? I haven't been back since. No, oh. and it's not by design other than um, opportunity and probably cost. It's it, mm, it's become yeah. pretty expensive. Yeah, and because you'd still have to fly and then ferry, and it's a few ways to get there. Yeah, it would, and I I I would love to go back, and I I plan to at some point when I get the opportunity to go back and see some of my old haunts. Did you retain any of it? Can you speak anything? A little bit, yeah, a little no. bit. But when I came back, um, like I say I, I came back, and it was a bit difficult, just the sort of change of pace. I didn't have uh, the alone time that I had over there. Um, one of the interesting things I found when I got back, as soon as I got back, is that I could understand everything everything that everybody was saying around me. Oh, okay. And as it, it was a distraction. I mean, I could wander around blissfully uh, ignorant in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, the background conversations were just that. It was sort of white noise, and I couldn't, I could understand some, but not everything. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I remember getting off the plane, sitting in a restaurant, and I, I was irritated that I could understand everything everyone was saying at the tables around me. I found it really distracting and hard to focus. And then 
Wow. There was so much, you know, I was driving again for the first time in, in a year. I'd been taking public transport, walking and bicycles. And uh, it was just, it, it was, it was very different coming back. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think about half of those things till it actually hits you. And then you're, yeah, you're kind of like driving again. I know I go on vacation and if I've been gone for like a month. Yeah. I come back and I'm like, I don't know if this is safe. <laughs> yeah, you, have, you, you know, you have that. Be gone for a year. Those odd things where you have that half second or full second pause at an intersection thinking, am I right? Can I turn right on a red light here? <laughs> I, I don't remember because the rules are all a bit different. But So uh, you said, you talked a bit about your family, that your parents weren't in policing, but did you have anybody in policing or even military that kind of maybe made you think about a career path in this at all? Uh, no, n none of my family were in policing. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's a firefighter, uh, but my brother was not in policing. My sister was an, is, was recently retired a nurse. Um, my parents, no, grandparents, no. I had, uh, an uncle uh, who was with the U.S. Army in Vietnam, 1965. Um, I had Another uncle, I knew him as uncle. He was actually my great uncle, as it turns out, but I only ever knew him as Uncle Wally. He was, uh, <laughs> ironically, he was on well, Wake Island with the Marines uh, in 1941 and was captured by the Japanese. Oh, wow. So my Uncle Wally was also in Japan, though on, not of his own volition. Yeah. <laughs> and he spent the entirety of the war in a prisoner of war camp in, um, on the island of Kyushu. Mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't a soldier. He was a civilian contractor who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, paid a significant price for it, but uh, not even a significant military background in my family. It just sort of was, um, you know, if it were a Bugs Bunny episode, it would I would have ended up policing by taking a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe what brings us up to getting into Lethbridge. And uh, what year did you go through training? Uh, 2001, January 2001. And what did training look like back in that time? Well, I because of my my background uh, being sort of liberal arts educated from the university, I had no background in, you know, I didn't go to the college in Lethbridge, which is a popular place for people to go and take the criminal justice program. I didn't have any of that. My familiarity was uh, everything I learned from, you know, watching T.J. Hooker as a kid. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know policing. I didn't know criminal law. And we did all of our training in-house, and it was a, essentially a six-month program in-house. Uh, and some of my, obviously, some of my classmates would have had a bit of a leg up because they came from the CJ program, and they had some familiarity with it. But for me, it was an entirely new world um, and, and a complete shift in, in, in thinking on, on everything. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a wake-up call for sure. And, and, you know, with the heavy emphasis, rightfully so, on officer safety, uh, I was— I was oblivious to those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You know that I'd never been in a situation where people meant to do me harm for any reason, let alone simply because of what my profession was. So that was an adjustment for me, a bit of a paradigm shift. And we did our six-month training there, and then assigned, probably similar to here, assigned to a field training officer out on the road for three months, and and then off you go. Is the training uh, 2001? So I went through with the Mounties in 2011. Um, I found 2011 not much different than nowadays, what I see in the training. Uh, you know, there's still your firearms, your driving, crim law, uh, officer safety stuff is a big component. Was it the same in 2001? 
It it was. I, there's been uh, changes for sure, uh, and ones that I think are warranted and um, pertinent. There are some things that are the same. Uh, it's gotten better. Mm. What I see now, I now I offer occasionally some um, instruction to the recruits when they come through on various topics. But uh, I think it's I think it's more wholesome now. I think there's a better wraparound approach to to training than there was even when I started. I think the emphasis are you know, it was a bit different in, in certain areas. Um, overall, an improvement. I I don't think it's as big a difference as there was between the time when I started and the time when my supervisors started. Mm. You know, and I, I hear stories from them. These are guys that were working when I was there uh, who would say, you know, they, they got their gun on day one. They were told what their beat was. They weren't allowed to drive a car yet. They had to earn that right, and then off you go. And that was sort of the extent of their training often. So hmm. um, a bit of an improvement. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I've heard some services do that. Instead of starting you a patrol, they don't trust you with a car yet, so they put you out on the beat. Yeah. It's like, yeah, get to walking. Well, we, uh, we have cars even in Lethbridge, and even in 2001, I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we didn't have uh, all the luxuries that we do now. You know, we didn't have um, the MDTs and the, the in-car computers and the GPS and stuff didn't didn't exist when I started. But so we were trained on radios. Yeah, yeah, you had a lot more radio procedures. Yeah, and, uh, and you know the requirement to be familiar with your with your surroundings and your city and know where you are mm-hmm. at all times um, because nobody else knew. You know, yeah, there was nobody sitting up in dispatch with a GPS monitor on you, knowing where you were. You had to be fully aware of that. It was a big part of our training. I remember. Yeah, I know nowadays uh, when the computers go down or, uh, you know, some systems getting upgraded in the middle of the day, because it's always at the worst time that they do all the upgrades or shut things down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, certain functions can really grind to a halt as soon as one computer isn't working. <laughs> yeah, and this would be a, a great opportunity to take a shot at millennials. And I'm not, go- I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but it is um, because, you know, the, the, the younger guys and girls that I work with today have um, have a skill set that I didn't have when mm-hmm. I started. And it's just different. It's just a, it's just a different world, but I have seen just that. And I've, you know, I've seen it in policing. I've seen it when you go to a restaurant and the power goes out. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody mm-hmm. knows how to do money transactions or, you know, add in their head. Um, nobody familiar with writing paper notes uh, or paper reports in our profession uh, as much as we used to have to do. So it's, you're right, it'll, it'll grind you to a halt. So um, when you get in, what is your kind of, what's your career path? Because you worked in a few different areas. I did, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at it on paper and it looks like a lot. I feel like I need to manage expectations a little bit here. <laughs> uh, I started in patrols as everyone tends to do. Yeah. Uh, and I worked that for a few years before uh, going into the downtown policing unit, which was not wholly different from patrols. And it was sort of in its infancy. It wasn't um, particularly well established yet in Lethbridge, but we were restricted to the downtown. Mm-hmm. And we had to do a bunch on foot and a bunch on bike. And uh, that was uh, a, a different, more sort of proactive community policing approach than what patrols had been, where it's a strictly response-related. 
Okay. Is Lethbridge broken down similar to Edmonton? We have six divisions. So downtown is one of the divisions. Yeah. But the way you describe downtown, at least when you were there, it sounds more like what we would call beats. And you have like a very small geographic area. Yes. Yeah. yeah and we, we we don't have districts. Um, probably Lethbridge would be the size of one of your districts, I, I mm. suppose, or, or close to. But we have beats. We have, you know, the city itself is divided into three sections. There's the west side, the north side, and the south side. And though the beat map has changed a little bit, the north side is one, the south side is one, the west side is one, and downtown is is the fourth one. Okay. It used to be the north side was divided into two beats and the south side into two beats, but that's not the case anymore. Those lines have been redrawn. So we essentially have four beats and downtown is is the smallest of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were saying that the city is about 100,000 people? That's correct. So how big is Lethbridge Police Service? We are uh, our authorized strength. Hmm. That which we are allowed to employ is about 174. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's not a lot, and we don't have that. I was thinking it was bigger than that. It, I, no, and so. it should be. Yeah. You're right. And if you can make some phone calls to city council, I'd appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, it it needs to be bigger. It's not. We. And we're suffering some of the same things that everyone else is as far as um, recruitment and retention. Mm-hmm. So our numbers are are down. We're we're in the 150s. You know, I'm going to guess maybe 158, 160 is what our actual numbers are. And that's, that's posing some challenges for us. Well, yeah, I, well, everywhere could always use more police. Uh, and especially just as things get more complicated, investigations are more complicated. Everything takes longer. Mm. Uh, you definitely need more. So throughout your career, because um, you've touched on a number of areas, anyone that really stands out in your mind as kind of maybe a favorite or somewhere you might look to go back to? Um, yes and no. After, after I was in the downtown, actually, I went into K-9. Mm. And I was given um, one of our first uh, Belgian Malinois dogs. So he had moved from German Shepherds to Mal's. And I was lucky enough to get one of the first one of those. Um, me and my my new canine partner in there uh, got the first two males. And, you know, over the next six, seven years in there, I got to say it was maybe my most rewarding time in policing, working with that dog. It was also the most frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be, it can be a very difficult assignment. And, um, whether people admit it or not when they're in there, you feel an immense amount of pressure, you know, when they call in the dog to find someone who otherwise would not be found or the evidence that otherwise would not be found, you, you damn sure want to find it yeah. or find them. And when you don't, you know, there's a bit of embarrassment and there's a bit of uh, frustration involved, maybe even a bit of anger because uh, you, you want to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to, you want to play your part for the team. You've got a specialty position. Mm-hmm. You've got a great responsibility and you want to fulfill that. And when you can't, it can be frustrating. But the opportunity to come to work every day with, you know, your best little buddy, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. And, yeah. and I never had as much fun uh, in policing as I did when, you know, you went on a long search or a long track and actually found someone who, who had committed a crime. Um, pretty satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when you go to a scene and, you know, there's 12 constables there, patrol patrol guys, and if you're screwing something up, maybe nobody notices, right, yeah. but 
There's only one dog there. Well, they <laughs> so, look at you. They're standing uh, outside their cars on cordon points, freezing their their butts off, and they're looking yeah. at you, thinking, "Okay, hot shot, you know, <laughs> do your job. That's all we ask." Mm-hmm. And, and you know, your dog decides to pee on a fire hydrant and uh, go in the back of the truck to hide from the cold. It's it's not it's not good. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I found through the course of canine, if I didn't know this already, that I I was not the smartest. A member of the partnership with my dog, clearly. Most of the mistakes that were made were mine and not the dogs. They mm. they naturally know how to find things and find people. And when we didn't, I, I think I could probably fairly blame myself. Well, I guess because you're, you're reading the dog, essentially. Mm. Yes. So, uh, and then one of the things I was going to ask too is, so you do part-time tactical. So how does that work? I'm guessing it's similar to what I might have seen with the Mounties, where they called people in from you know patrol or wherever they're working right. on their day to day. Then they come together to do whatever the tactical mission is. Yeah, it's the same in Lethbridge. We have about yeah. a 15 uh, member team, mm-hmm. and they're assigned throughout the organization. And uh, when you know a critical incident occurs and there's a requirement for the tactical team, we get called out and we drop what we're doing. And go, unless it's a member of patrols who's actually at that critical incident. And then they try and contribute from that from that position. But mm-hmm. ultimately, you're getting, you're getting called in or you're getting pulled away from your day-to-day task to go deal with it. So in Lethbridge, city of 100,000 people, and you kind of alluded to, this, uh, alluded to this already, but you have the same issues down there that any big city would have. Uh, do you have like the same kind of issues in the sense of like drug use, uh, say homelessness, is that major concerns down there too? Yeah, they're major concerns. Um, mm. Very similar to what everyone else is experiencing, and no different. And and you know probably to scale, um, we have a really uh, significant um, drug addiction problem. Meth is uh, huge, and has been huge in Lethbridge. Um, opioids as well, and and homelessness. Uh, we're battling that right now, where our city council is having to deal with, uh, you know, these sort of makeshift shanty towns and tent mm-hmm. camps that are being set up around the city, and then you know people sort of stumbling over how we deal with that appropriately, and uh, what our obligations are, what our limitations are, you know, legally, and uh, how how the community can do it as a whole rather than sending in the stormtroopers to yeah to bust people. Is it the same kind of pressure down there for police to be so involved in, I'll say these like social work type programs, or are you more geared toward like, well, we handle the criminal stuff and, you know, other agencies, other partners are able to kind of handle more of these other things? I think our experience is probably identical to what yours is and what Calgary's is and, you know, Medicine Hat. Um, we get drawn in. And I think when you had him on, Tom Stamatak has talked about how police become the catch-all for a lot of the social issues. Yeah. It's no different in, in my city than it is in yours. The buck stops with us because we're working 24-7, 365, mm-hmm. and nobody else is. Yeah, and it seems like that's that was a big theme where it's like, well, who else is going to work past four in the afternoon? Yeah, <laughs> just us. Just us. So we're there, we're available. So we're uh, kind of picking up where everybody else is leaving it off. 
but we have a few 24-7 services here. But even then, um, I just, from my own experience, I found a lot of them aren't able to handle a lot of the situations. Like at the end of the day, you still need somebody there that can provide protection and safety. Yeah, and I, uh, listen, I have family uh, who are firefighters and I have really good friends who are firefighters. I love them. Uh, I love them to death. They do a lot of really good work. They work really hard. Yeah, well. And. Oh, go ahead. Well, and they sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I, you know what? Even nowadays, we get a lot of people. Uh, so we have EMS and, and fire. Uh, they stage a calls now, right? So they can't go in until yeah. a police officer shows up. And and this isn't to like knock them because they, they have their function and what they're there to do. But I've been to a number of calls where it's just myself or one other person. Uh, so two of us show up and you'll have, was it on a fire truck? Six people, eight people. Yeah. You'll have a whole bunch of them. You'll have two EMS people. Yeah. You might have a bunch of bystanders there and there's one of you maybe two to deal with whatever crazy shit show is going on. Yeah. You know, like nobody else can help me. Nobody else can step in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just going to you know, get into this fight by myself. That's, so, that, that's frustrating. Yeah. Having said that, we, we have a really good relationship with our firefighters too. Uh, and because we're a smaller city, you know, we see them a lot. And mm -hmm. so we end up at the same calls a lot and you know them by first name. Mm -hmm. and, and I have no doubt uh, that if something like that were, you know, to arise that, you know, one of my friends with the fire department would, would step in mm -hmm. and, and help me out. And they've, and they've done it in the past. So, yeah, you know, I appreciate what, I appreciate what they do, but I can't pass up the opportunity to take a shot at them. <laughs> Rightfully so. That's as old as time. <laughs> it's like cats and dogs. Uh, so what led you into association work and how did that kind of start for you? Uh, it was about 2005. So I, I, I had been on for about four years, which doesn't seem particularly long, um, to get in, involved in association work, but, you know, much like probably everyone else who's been in policing, you go through, um, highs and lows and ups and downs, you know, at various stages in your career where you think it's the greatest thing in the world to be doing this. And then you think it's horrible and you can't wait to leave and you're looking at other opportunities and, uh, it sort of fluctuates between those two. Um, and I think at some point in time, I had some frustrations with, with how management was conducting their business. And I was young enough to have an inflated sense of ego to think that maybe I can help or maybe I can stop this nonsense. And I at very least knew that I wanted to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably was instilled in me from, from my upbringing as well uh, through my parents is that, you ought not complain unless you're willing to step up and do something about it. Yes, uh, and that was a large part of my that was a large part of my background. So um, step up or shut up, and I wanted to be involved. And you know, I respected some of the guys that were on the association board, and I you know went to them for uh, advice and thoughts on things. And I thought, you know, I'd I'd like to be in that position, and at at very least, I'd like to have a greater understanding of the organization as a whole a bit of a broader view on how things work around here because it's really easy to complain when, you're, when your view is limited. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the association definitely provides that. And I've only been in the director spot or one of the director spots here for coming up on a year. And it's uh, quite an eye-opening experience. And especially when you get to sit in and watch uh, 
if you get to watch police commission meetings uh, um, or city council or something, and you pay attention to these things more because it has a more direct impact on what you're doing. Uh, yeah, very different world. <laughs> yeah, it's a real boost to your organizational awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, you, you will see and experience things that will uh, increase your, um, if you have any disdain for management, but you will also see things that help you to understand why they're making some of the decisions they are, some of the challenges that they face. And when you're in a position to be engaged in conversation with them on those topics, um, I mean, I think it. I think it helps the members to have an advocate at that table, but I also think it helps the organization to to sort of function when when you're working together in that regard. Yeah. Well, and so did you start out as a director, or did you go straight into? I was. Position? Yeah, I was a director, and uh, listen. So I've been there since 2001, and that's 22 years. In that time, there have been two association presidents uh, only, mm. my predecessor and me. Over the, over the span of 22 years. So uh, continuity hasn't been an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Lethbridge, there hasn't been a lot of turnover. Um, but I went from being a director for a few years into being the secretary. Mm-hmm. So I was on the board executive for a little bit and, and worked very closely with our president at the time and sort of acted as his little shadow, find out where he was going after hours and what he was doing and who he was meeting with and um, all the things that happen in the background that, you know, most of our members don't know about, aren't aware of, uh, or, or don't appreciate have to happen. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot of those sort of things from him. And, and when it came time for him to retire, um, it, it was almost just natural for me to, to step into that spot because I had, I had studied it. Well, it's good. You, you have a mentor, right? You have mm-hmm. somebody to show you the ropes. I couldn't imagine going into the president or vice president spot here cold. <laughs> yeah, it would be a really steep learning curve. And, and I think you would look for that level of succession planning in any kind of organization, I would think, you mm-hmm. know, where you, you actually plan ahead to the best of your ability. I mean, in, in our case, it's subject to, to voting. So, you know, there was always a possibility that I could get voted out. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that you can plan for that. I think you got to plan for for what you can control and uh, you know you need to prepare a little bit for the future so we we spent some time working together and, and trying i was trying to develop myself so that you know that when the day came that he was no longer there um if i could use him as a crutch on the outside for a bit great but i wanted to be in a position to, to be able to do his job and and then i got it and uh you know i've been in that role for i think it's eight maybe nine years as president but 17 on the board as as a whole, most of most of my career, I've spent more time in that role than I have in any other, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you plan on staying there for a few years? Or do you have plans of doing anything else? Uh, plans. Um, we have an election here this fall, and I will I will run again, mm-hmm. and then after that, you know, we'll see. But you know, I, I've spoken to your president, Mike Elliott, a, a lot, and we're both of the same mind that everything has a, a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Having said that, you know, you, you need someone to be able to be able to and be willing to step up and take over. Mm. And so, you know, part of it is helping to develop, you know, the, the younger members to come do that. So I think what my goal is, uh, is to set someone up to be in a position, anyone up, whoever's willing to do it, to, to take over for me. Well, and speaking on that, so 
maybe we'll get into a bit of the work and focus of the association and, and what you do. Um, is there any specific lobbying or things that you are working on that you're kind of hoping to see something come out of? Well, a large part of what we do as an association is um, is in relation to sort of relationship building. And we have that really, really well in our province right now. And Lethbridge is a member of the Alberta Federation of Police Associations, as is Edmonton, Calgary, mm-hmm. Tabor, Camrose, Medicine Hat, Lacombe, Blood Tribe. And, and we do a lot of work together. It's nice to have big brothers in Calgary and Edmonton, you know, who will who have the money, the resources, the time to sort of lead the way on some of these things. And some of the smaller organizations like like us can can be with them, you know, in a bit of a partnership. And so any of the lobbying efforts that we do, uh, to a very large extent uh, on a provincial level, are done through AFPA. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll participate in that municipally. Again, it's a it's a little bit different because because of the size of our city. And, you know, we generally kind of know one another. Yeah. And so it's not um, it's not unheard of for, for me to be able to go down to City Hall and meet with a council member or, you know, meet with commission or something. Um, you try to establish those relationships locally so that you can, you know, have an impact on your organization and your municipality, but also, you know, foster that provincial relationship so that on a provincial level we can maybe make some changes in lobbying for legislation and so forth. And, you know, the the one I can think of, although it was a little while ago, you know, led by by Calgary that we partnered with them on was uh, the change in legislation for paying at the gas pumps, right? Yeah. Pre- prepaying your gas. Is, yeah. That was a result of a, a nasty incident in Calgary that, you know, AFPA got behind and, and pushed toward achieving. I think that's, I think that was a success. But, and then on the national level, obviously we are also affiliate members or members of the Canadian Police Association. Mm-hmm. So each spring we'll go out for lobby day on Parliament Hill and speak to our elected officials on things like the items that have been spoken about on your program before, like parole reform. Yeah. So have you gone personally? Like, have you been a part of those on Parliament? Going I have, out there? yeah. What's, what's that experience like? It's interesting. Uh, it's, it's, it's encouraging and it's frustrating. It's encouraging to go out there and meet with elected officials and have them hear right from you what the issues are. So that it's not filtered through their aides and assistants and their parties, and mm. they get to hear, um, you know, from your mouth what 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 the matter is. Um, what I have found frustrating is that they will they will find something like parole reform uh, across all parties very interesting and very appetizing, and once you leave, it might not fit their party's agenda. Mm-hmm. What's frustrating is that one side of the house may not show interest in an issue because the other side of the house does. Yeah. And that that's difficult to get traction with. Well, it's almost like they, you know, without rhyme or reason, they just, I see of politics in general, I see this, but without rhyme or reason, it's just as soon as somebody says something is A, the other side has to say it's B. It's, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very reactionary. And, and maybe there's a reason for it. And maybe there are things going on there that I'm not privy to that, you know, will allow me to understand a little bit better. But on the surface, it seems exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and do you find in general, are the politicians, uh, whether it's local or at the national level, 
are they really receptive to listening to police issues? Or is it just kind of a, you know, uh, we'll let you come in and talk, but we're going to do what we're going to do anyways. Both. Both, yeah. Yeah, both. Uh, in, in some cases, there is some genuine, genuine interest. Uh, and historically, it's not been, you know, popular for them to discount the police. Nobody wants to be seen as not listening or not caring about policing or community safety, mm-hmm. public safety in general. And so, you know, they want to at least, they want if they don't want to listen to you, they want to be seen to be listening to you or believed to be listening to you. And in some cases, I think you're right. It's the appearance of that that's important to them more than it is actually having listened to you or heard what you've had to say. But there are cases where they are genuinely interested and they're passionate and they care. And, and you will, you know, you'll speak with um, elected officials whose family members are police or whose fathers, you know, served with the RCMP or something. And they they have a real vested interest in making our lot in life better. Mm-hmm. And that's encouraging. Well, that's one thing I always thought too is just the number of people out there that must have somebody in their family tree somewhere that have worked in some of the services, even if it's uh, uh, paramedic or fire, not necessarily police, but somebody that is out there exposed to a lot of the danger. Right. Uh, so you think they would care. <laughs> they, they do care. And you can tell the ones, uh, you can tell generally the ones who do mm-hmm. and the ones who are there just sort of to pay you lip service. But you know, the one time when I was out in Ottawa on Parliament Hill, I had a meeting scheduled with one of the senators. And uh, a very nice man welcomed me into his office. And I, you know, embarrassingly, I didn't remember having met him before. I thought this was someone that I was meeting for the first time. And when I got mm-hmm. in his office, he uh, he said, yeah, no, I, we've met. We met last time you were out here. I remember you. You're the guy from Lethbridge. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. I'm a bit embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, that's fine. We were talking about uh, legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, God, what did I say? <laughs> and uh, he, he he got a chuckle out of it. He reminded me that the last time I was there, he'd, he'd posed that question to me, legalization of marijuana. And I think my, really my only answer to him was, generally speaking, any of the knockdown, drag them out fights that I've had on the street have not been with people who were smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. I've been with the the whiskey drinkers. Yeah. The good old Southern Alberta boys just out <laughs> for a rip. And uh, he, he sort of remembered that. And I had to be very careful to say, you know, that's not, that's not the official position of the Lethbridge Police Association or the Alberta Federation uh, or even the CPA necessarily. We're not here to speak about, you know, legalization of marijuana. That's not one of our issues. Please don't let that be the only thing you take from our meeting. But he heard it enough to remember from one year to the next Hmm. what the police thought. And God help us all, if I was the voice of the police on Parliament (laughs) Hill that day, uh, I apologize to anyone who might see things differently. Well, it's nice to know that there's some people out there that remember these things, right? And are, I'd say that's really smart. You can (laughs) recall those type of details. But uh, maybe more locally uh, in the province, there's a lot of talk about police act reform. Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably bug uh, our president about this a little more, but um, we hear about it a lot, but I've never heard of a timeline for it. I don't know what's actually changing. So can you kind of update on where that's at right now? Not very much. I, I can say that I've been a part of those talks for a great many years. 
And I know the Alberta Federation had a position paper on it drawn up, you know, oh God, discussions on it a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And a position paper on it, at least in 2015, that I know was presented to um, the newly elected NDP government uh, with our thoughts on it. And again, you know, when the NDP went out for, in favor of the UCP, uh, it was revisited again. Everything has seemed like it was so transitional for so long that there's not been any traction on that either. And I know that this sort of Sociopolitical issues around policing uh, being at the forefront now have maybe accelerated some of those talks, but I myself don't know the status of where government is at in relation to police act reform. I know that they've been discussing it, and I know they're looking at things that aren't necessarily um, in line with what our thoughts on it were uh, as a provincial association, but uh, it it seems to be a long time coming. and. Part of the frustration in that for us is that we, you know, we have a number of people in the community crying out for police reform. And there's the sentiment that we're against it somehow. You know, someone someone believes that it's it's the police preventing that from happening, and that, that couldn't be further from the truth. We've been advocating for police act reform uh, for a very long time, and I think we would embrace it because there's some things that need to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not just in relation to one thing. It's... Um, it's everything. It's everything from from oversight to governance to you know disciplinary models, and um, we're we're open to change, and I think we need to be, and I think now is the time to to do it and to know that we're doing it, and I I think it's important for people to understand how much we would embrace that kind of change. Yeah, well, and you're saying some some things aren't aligning, like between the the I guess the province's view and then the police view. So can you? Tell us a bit about that. Like, what isn't exactly, uh, like, what what changes do they want that maybe we are not in favor of? Yeah, you know, to speak intelligently on it, I'd almost have to have uh, their last communique on it um, beside our last position paper on it. Mm. And I wouldn't want to give, for me to get into it too much, I think would be a bit speculative, and I don't want to give bad information uh, or, or send anybody, any of the, any of our provincial members, um, off on a bit of a, a tangent uh, on in bad information that I gave them. So I, I don't know <laughs> if I can speak intelligently enough on it right now to to drop that. Well, can you tell us um, maybe some of the changes that the that either the Lethbridge Police or one of the greater organizations are in favor of? Well, I think one of the things uh, th- that was put forward that maybe has some value is um, is in relation to a discipline mm-hmm. and who investigates, you know, complaints against police. Because as it stands right now, we have our own, we all have our own professional standards sections. Um, and the perception of that can be that it's the police investigating the police. And so they're, they're if there isn't actual bias, they're, very easily can be the perception of, of bias. Mm-hmm. And I think there'd be a, a mechanism to uh, eliminate that if there was some uh, independent investigation similar to what ACERT does for criminal matters. You know, if there was an independent investigation into police misconduct so that it's not uniform cops investigating uniform cops, guys that you might play hockey with or go to coffee with, or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that can, I can see where that's problematic for the community. And, uh, you know, similar 
similar to that train of thought is the the timelines associated with those investigations. You know, for our sake, for the sake of our members, uh, we want that transparency. Right? We don't want to be cloaked in in mystery and in, in how a resolution was achieved with the cops investigating the cops. We would like to be vindicated where it's warranted and and when it's not warranted and when there's discipline um, that's necessary that it that it be objective. Yeah. You know, and that it be fair and that it be consistent and thorough and and maybe provincially there's an opportunity to do that so that, you know, one set of circumstances in Lethbridge or Calgary isn't dealt with differently than it is in Edmonton or Medicine Hat. Uh, I think if we want anything out of discipline, it's that it's fair and it's consistent. Mm-hmm. And the timelines don't even necessarily allow for that because of the, the amount of time that it takes for the investigation to be concluded and then run through a hearing and get a disposition, uh, you know, and appeals through the LERB. The the police members want these things uh, dealt with swiftly, and the public deserves to have these things dealt with swiftly. You know, they make a, they make a complaint about an officer that takes uh, a year or eighteen months uh, to be resolved, and that's that's not in anybody's best interest. Yeah. Well, and so to get actual reform done, what's the process for that? I mean, is it just, is there one person who has to essentially sign something at the end of it all? Or is it, you know, is it slow moving because we always have to have 20 people in a room together? Yeah, well, it's it's slow moving because it's um, it requires legislative change. Mm. So changes to the Police Act and the Police Service Regulations. Would, would be required and that any change of legislation takes uh, forever. You know, they run it through their committees and their focus groups and their discussions. And then, you know, you have provincial government change and it gets put on the back shelf or on the back burner again and isn't revisited. And then trying to get consensus on any issue, let alone one as contentious as um, policing right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just slow. It's frustratingly slow. Well, and since we're talking kind of about reform, do you think a lot of the criticisms of police, whether it's the militarization, systemic racism, um, there's all the use of force stuff, are they kind of fair criticisms? I think there are some that are fair. Uh, and I think there are some that are not fair. That's a real middle-of-the-road kind of answer. That's, so, mm. that's atypically non-committal for me. Um, but it's... But it's true, you know. There, people have legitimate concerns mm-hmm. about about members of the police. And uh, listen, it's no secret. Policing is like any other profession in that um, there are some assholes. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are not necessarily particularly good at it. They don't have an affinity for it, or and there can be a lot of reasons for that. You know, we have some people who are. Um, that way by nature. We have some people who are that way because they've been damaged by the work that they do. And misconducts come in all different sizes, shapes, and flavors. So, uh, but the, the truth of it is there are misconducts that occur. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some bad police behavior. Uh, I will say that it is um, remarkably small percentage of the interactions that police have with the public that result in that kind of behavior. Now, I mean, and you're looking at a scale. It's a sliding scale too, right? A misconduct can be someone, something as simple as someone being rude. You know, one of our members swearing at a member of the public. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't do that. 
that's not professional, it's not appropriate. And then there's the, you know, the complaints of excessive use of force, which is at the other end of the spectrum, or, or criminal activity, which is one step worse than that. But um, these instances do occur, and we can't pretend that they don't occur. And mm-hmm. we can't, you know, throw up our, our invisible shield and say, no, the police uh, never do anything wrong. You just do what we say, follow along, because that's not, that's not fair. It's not appropriate. We, uh, you know, you can't escape the fact that we're all, we're human in this job. And we're subject to all the pressures that every other human faces on a day-to-day basis. Um, the difference for us is that the level of scrutiny and oversight is not like any other profession in the world right now. Mm-hmm including doctors and lawyers, you know, those uh, those whose demands are significant, uh, but they don't necessarily face the same level of oversight that well, we do. And that was, I was actually just going to give that example, is I don't think the level of scrutiny is fair, uh, given you know, that there are other professions out there, people dealing with, uh, individuals in vulnerable positions, doctors are a good example. Uh, and it, you know, if a doctor gets in trouble for sexual assault, right? You have somebody in your care, and you do something you're not supposed to, and you're in trouble for sexual assault. Well, we don't have people going and marching, uh, saying I don't trust all doctors, mm. fire doctors. Um, the other thing too is like, it seems like uh, uh, every time police get in trouble for something it is instantly just like throw them in the fire fire everybody uh we basically want their heads and and that's from like politicians too yeah and i was like well end of the day like who do you think is going to be there to protect you at the end of the day like you can't get rid of the police you can't you shouldn't not that you can't but i guess you shouldn't be treating everybody like you know complete garbage uh, and blanket statement on all the cops because there's lots of good ones in any profession. You know, uh, Edmonton alone has 1,800, 2,000 sworn members. I'm pretty sure there's going to be one bad person in there, if yeah. not a couple. Yeah. So just the the overreaction to a lot of things, some of it's valid, um, but there's a lot of overreaction to a lot of situations there, there is that, and there also seems to be a bit of an assumption that um, good cops are okay with that. Mm. And so, you know, it's it's important for people to know that. I mean, we have a professional face to put on and present to the public, and that when we leave the building and we go out on the street, we are all on the same team, and we need to be because our own lives depend on it, and the you know public safety depends on us being on the same team in a coordinated effort to fight crime disorder uh, and provide public safety. But the truth of it is, you know, you've worked with people or I've worked with people who you you have an issue with how they have gone about their business. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want the public to think that we're okay with it. Uh, the place for us to deal with that is not necessarily right out there on the street uh, in a public display or make mm-hmm. a spectacle of, of resolving the issue. But there are issues between between our members that need to be resolved and they do get resolved. Not unlike a sports team, you don't, you don't, you ought not do it on the field. Yeah. But you damn sure better do it back in the locker room. Yeah. And if the coach isn't going to do it, then then we're you know, we're going to address it ourselves. Yeah. Well, and think of how many situations you go to and you know, someone's wielding a knife in public and everybody pulls out their cameras and wants to see the cops' reaction. Yeah. yeah. 
Like that's that's not safe at all. No. And we've gone to a point in society where people are not even concerned about the person who's waving the knife around and unpredictable and maybe even just stab somebody. Mm. They just want to see what the cop's going to do and try to get their 15 seconds of fame, get that person in trouble. Yeah, spectacle. Um, yeah. Get a lot, of lo- a lot of likes online yeah. and, and social media. and um, Or, you know, and I don't even know necessarily that it's uh, they have nefarious means in mind that they're, they're trying to get us or catch us or get their gotcha moment necessarily. It's just that we've become so... Uh, observational um, in that we record everything. And it's not enough to record it. I mean, we took millions of family photos growing up and we recorded those moments, but they were for ourselves. We didn't didn't share them with the world Mm -hmm. for uh, acceptance or validation. Um, You know, frankly, I I don't care what somebody had for dinner or what their workout was like or where they're going tonight. I don't need to see it online. It's not, it's not my business, but uh, that's the culture that we live in now where everything is, is broadcast. Yeah. And that the truth is, um, fluid. Well, we need to get to a point where one negative doesn't outweigh the literal thousands, if not tens of thousands of positive interactions that happen on a day. Right. So there's one use of force that, uh, someone should rightfully be criticized for, mm-hmm. maybe even fired. But, you know, we don't all wear that, just like any other profession out there shouldn't necessarily wear it. Well, it's, it's I would say, and I'm not, I'm not excusing any uh, bad behavior by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, those bad interactions, uh, and we have, like you say, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of them between police and the public, less than 1% of those uh, result in you know, complaints with merit. Yeah. Um, and those are pretty good statistics. I mean, obviously you would like that to be none, but mm-hmm. it, it's not possible. We're, well, we we're don't. not robots. We saw how that worked out for Peter Weller and RoboCop. It's not, <laughs> it's not achievable. Yeah. It's not something we can do. And I'm okay that the public won't accept bad behavior. They shouldn't. We should be held to a higher standard. There just has to be, you know, uh, some confidence that, it's going to be it's going to be addressed and it's going to be dealt with. And now you've seen it as probably as well as I have. Anytime there's discipline involved for members, um, somebody goes away unhappy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either the member's unhappy because it was too severe, or the member of the public is unhappy because it wasn't severe enough. And in some cases, it's both. They're both unhappy. One side thinks that they were leaned on a little too heavy. The other side thinks it's not enough. They should be fired. Uh, and that's you're not going to avoid that. Mm-hmm. But you do have to have a mechanism in place for for the accountability, uh, and and it's it's warranted. We have to have it. Yeah. Well, um, we kind of come up to the end of our time, but uh, what do you kind of see for the future uh, for policing? Is there maybe better times on the horizon? Is you know reform going to help us lead us to a bit of a better place? A better place? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> change is necessary. Uh, and it's unavoidable. And I, I've been doing it for 22 years, and so the the spectrum that I've seen is is um, pretty significant. You know, I started, like I said, in January 2001, uh, and by September of that year, 9/11 uh, became a pretty significant event. After which, first responders were were lauded. You know, around every corner, we were we were um, sort of celebrated mm-hmm. and. Um, I won't say revered, that's too strong, but appreciated at least. Yeah. And, you know, our, our 
popularity was fairly high, police and fire, and it, and it felt good, and it translated into resources and funding. Uh, recruiting was not an issue then, but through the course of my career that has changed. So that's within the first year that I started. And now in the last few years with some of the social political uh, issues that are going on from um, from George Floyd through COVID, that climate has changed for policing. And you throw in the, you know, the economic crisis in um, 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, recruiting, retention, resources, funding, uh, those are all major significant challenges for us now. Yeah. And it's it feels a little bit like a pendulum that I hope will start to swing back the other way at some point. And I don't know what precipitates that. I don't know if legislative change in and of itself is enough to do that. I don't know if there's a, a cultural change. Um, I think it's a, a holistic answer you have to have. You need parts of everybody. Because even for us, we're just one small part of a bigger system. Yeah, There's a lot of other people involved in the justice system or the community that like we, we fit into a lot of different areas. And uh, I think a lot of people need to kind of start changing their tune on certain things, but um, you know, legislation, but also media, the political narrative out there. Um, well, that's a change. That's a big part of it. Uh, people, I think it seems to be those who have the courage to uh, speak up loudly uh, tend to be on one far end of or the other of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of people who are sort of a silent uh, majority that are, are not, you know, wholly dissatisfied with us. I think the police have a lot of support in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to a large extent, those people aren't on uh, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and they aren't, you know, and it's and it's not been particularly popular the last few years to to acknowledge that you support the police, um, either as a member of the community or an elected official. It's been a bit of a a tenuous position to hold if you're a police supporter right now. So that will that will change, I think. Although I don't know what's in store. I don't know what's in store for us uh, long term, but it's not getting easier, and it may not get easier. It, mm -hmm. This might be a grind of a profession. Um, the good news is there are still those who want to do it and we need to be, I think we need to start being very creative in how we attract uh, people to our profession because we can't go without it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the alternative? Uh, go back to the wild west. Yeah. Chaos or we can, <laughs> we can privatize policing. We can hire the Pinkertons. Yeah. So, I mean, people don't have to look too far in the past to see what it was like when you didn't have an actual law enforcement around. No, and I don't think that's going to go away, I, mm -hmm. but how it looks. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe for the same reasons I wasn't creative enough to think outside of a career opportunity box, I'm, I'm maybe not creative enough right now to think of a solution uh, to, to change not only how we do it so much as how we're, how we're perceived, but um, one of my time in policing is winding down. I have a few years to go and I'll be anxious to watch from the outside to see <laughs> how you folks make out. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All the best to you. Yes. Well, um, we're right, right at the end here. Uh, is there anything that you think we missed? Anything you want to make sure we covered? 
I don't know. You know, I don't know that there is. I, I, I know that probably a large part of your audience uh, are police. Um, and my job for the last 17 years has been to care for those people and, and provide for them. And I know there's been some, there's always a bit of a misunderstanding of what the role of a police association is. And we didn't really specifically get into that. Uh, but ultimately, a, a genuine care for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a hope that our people are um, doing well mentally and physically, and then they're getting, you know, what they need to, to continue on in this career because we need them. And we've got a ton of people who are doing just exceptional work. And they're doing exceptional work in times of extreme adversity um, when it would be really easy to fold their cards and, and tap out and move yeah. on to something different, move on to something easier. And there, some people, some people are. And it's better for them to do that. And I understand that. I appreciate it and I respect it. Um, I really respect, you know, the the state of mind or, or the the self-awareness for people who who know that they're not they're not suited for it and then they leave. Um, and for those who stay behind and, and keep plugging through all of this, you know, when you've got patrol members working the street so short that they can barely breathe and they can barely manage the calls for service. Oh, the overtime. <laughs> it's just insane because there's nobody out there. And then the work that they are doing is being, you know, complained about and scrutinized. And, you know, it, it would be easy to, to to Fido this and just, you know, never mind what's going on, drive on, get through your shift, try mm-hmm. try not to have an impact, try not to be seen, keep your head down. Uh, and our, our people aren't doing that. Mm-hmm. They're going out there and they're putting in the blood, sweat, and tears to, to provide for their community. Um, and I... And I, I'm at the forefront of those who respect and appreciate it because I know I know what it takes, and uh, I, I I don't want our people to to give up hope. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to stop doing what they're doing because I think it has to come a bit from within, and we need to show the appreciation for each other if we expect the community to do the same. So for everybody who is working, um, there's a, there's a lot of people who appreciate you and count me among them. Well, and where can people follow some of your work? Well, I hope that they don't. Uh, <laughs> Lethbridge has had a lot of their work followed fairly publicly over the last couple of years, from deers to stormtroopers to allegedly spying on elected officials to inappropriate memes to you know a solicitor general, justice minister threatening to dissolve our mm-hmm. police service. It hasn't been an easy time for us, and those are the things that people have seen in Lethbridge. So. For the time being, if they don't hear my name, don't see my face, or hear my voice, uh, I, I'm I'm okay with I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, um, you know, they, I think your members appreciate at least you coming on here, and they'll hopefully listen to what you have to say. Um, we have a lot a lot of similarities between Edmonton and uh, Lethbridge. Uh, some of the topics we didn't cover, I had uh, Mike on, so our president for people listening um and we we talked about you know specifically what an association is for uh and some of the other things we did cover so i i think in totality um if people listen to both of those and when uh, uh tom stamatakis was on as well uh between the three of you we get like a really good view of kind of what's going on in the world today with police and then the associations and and what they're up against but also they're helping people yeah so 
Well, we've had, yeah, we've had, I mean, we've had some interesting times down south. And I know that probably some of your members are familiar with some of the things that we've had to go through. And on another day and another time, I'd be happy to walk you through some of those adventures. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look to get you back on. So thank you for coming uh, all this way. No, thank you for having me. And listen, the opportunity to come to uh, Edmonton in November when the Oilers are out of town, sign me up. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll cut it there. Thank you. Thank you.